Bibles, if you would look with me to Revelation chapter number one today, Revelation chapter number one. And when you find your place, if you would stand as we honor God's glorious word. We're going to read verse one down to verse number eight today. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Isn't it good to have a faithful witness in a world of deception? And the first begotten of the dead, he is the first risen of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests, unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 7 says, Behold, he cometh. It's actually in a tense in the Greek, which you could word it, Behold, he is on his way with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. And then Christ speaks and says, I am Alpha and Omega. That's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Father, we thank you for your glorious word today. Our hearts are humbled by the greatness of our God. We worship you, Jesus Christ. You're worth our time to come and to sing and to stand and to focus on your truth Lord, I pray that you would do a great work in the hearts of your people, not only in Xenia and Lighthouse and other churches, but all around the world. Lord, may Christ be put on display through the preaching of the cross and the resurrection. And we worship your glorious son, Jesus Christ, this day. We pray if anyone doesn't know the Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, man, you may be seated today. As we look across the landscape of America, sometimes we wish what we saw wasn't really there, right? We don't see a country moving in a good direction. Schools are being shot up, innocent children and teachers being killed. Drugs are rampant in our schools and streets and both young and old. Sexual perversion is out of control. Children today are being taught that sexual Perversion is normal. America also, which was the greatest lending nation on the planet in the 1970s, has now become the greatest in-debt nation that has ever existed on planet Earth. We have cities also that have turned into war zones in this country. Cities like Chicago have, last year alone, 2,600 shootings. You know, even today, for our big days, we, we always have security, but today is, we have a police officer park their car out front just to make sure people know that this is a protected facility, right? And aren't we thankful for our police officers? Amen. Let's give them guys a hand. 
Wouldn't it be nice today when you're leaving, slip that officer out there. If everybody slipped him a $5 bill, that'd be a blessing for him, wouldn't it? Reach in that pocket and bless that guy. We, we appreciate these guys, you know, facing things. In, in Chicago, 695 murders last year. We're living in a world that are under the rule of the evil one. Revelation 12.9 says that Satan deceives the whole world. When Satan is bound in hell, Revelation 20 verse 3 says, And they cast him into a bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Revelation 20 verse 7 says, When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. And guess what he does immediately? And shall go out to deceive the nations. When you look across the span of this world, Satan is actively at work in the leadership of those nations, unbeknownst to them, but he is working deceivingly. 1 John 5.19 tells us the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. The Bible is also clear. You need to understand this. The world will not get better. Do you hear me? The, the United States is not in a on course according to the scriptures to be turned around. God can do whatever he wants. We could see an incredible revival break out. But Second Timothy 3.13 and many other passages tell us that according to the last times, things will get worse. It tells us in the last days, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. The defining factor of the world in the last days will be a world that is deceived. Do you ever look across America and think that, is this nation deceived? How many leaders are just deceived? Sitting in deception? I mean, if you want to know if the media is ever lying, all you do is have to just watch their lips. If they begin to speak, it's like they're not telling the truth right there. I mean, lies and deceptions, they, they, they want to promote what they can promote. We just heard this last week, people who took the boosters and the COVID shots have a higher mortality rate than those who did not. Seems like that doesn't hit the media very often, does it? We live in a world of lies and deception. Leadership in this country over the years has also used situations for their own gain. It's pretty sad when the leadership of the country goes to Tennessee not to go to the funerals or to support those victims who died, but to try to promote gun control. Ask the Indians how it went when their guns were given up. Uh, I don't think we're deceived on that, are we? So is there hope for a nation that is blind and, and just spiraling out of control into sin? Totally deceived, getting worse and worse? And the answer is yes. The Lord Jesus Christ, when ascending into heaven, according to Acts chapter 1, the angel said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus told his disciples that he would go and prepare a place for them in John 14, 3. And he said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. You know what they do during... Um, Jewish marriages is the husband would go away, prepare a home. When the home was prepared, he would come back. There would be a marriage and he would marry his wife and then bring her to his home. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. And 
he has gone to prepare a place and he's going to come and receive us, the church, and rapture us up and we will be with him forever in a glorious heaven. If, it, if this earth was created in six days and he rested on the seventh, what do you think the glories of heaven will be since he's been working on it for the last 2,000 years? No wonder he calls it paradise. But the Bible tells us he is returning. Even as we observed the Lord's Supper last Sunday, the Bible says you observe the Lord's Supper and as you do this, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Titus 2.13, Paul says, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the book of Revelation opens up and you say, why would you preach on the book? Some of you are probably thinking, why are we going to Revelation 1 on Easter? Because you need to understand it is the resurrection that guarantees the Lord's returning. Christ is coming back. He is returning. Jesus Christ is coming back. He is going to return, and that return could be very, very soon. I could rabbit trail right now on a message for about an hour just in my soul of things that I know that are going on that are pointing to Christ's soon return. The, the, the world is primed for the Lord's return. There's nothing in the Bible that has to happen for Him to come back. There's no prophecies that need to be fulfilled. We see in Revelation 1-7, it opens up. It's the apocalypsis of Jesus Christo. The revelation. It's, it's, it's from the word apocalypsis. It means the lifting of the curtain, the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And it tells us in verse 7, Behold, He cometh with clouds. And then it says, And every eye shall see Him, and they that pierced Him. His coming will be so transcendently glorious that every eye on the earth will be able to see Him in some way, and also those in the abyss will also be able to see Him. Revelation 22, not only, not only is Revelation open with speaking of His coming, but it closes by saying this in Revelation 22, the last chapter. It says, he which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly, amen. And John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Isn't that what we say too? Lord, come. Lord, come. Our king will return, you need to understand. He will destroy Satan, who is the usurper. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. One of the most stirring pages in English history tells of the conquest and crusades of King Richard, who they called the Lion-Hearted. While Richard was away trouncing Saladin, his kingdom fell on bad times. His sly, graceless brother John usurped the throne. And misruled in his place, his kingdom. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of the rightful king and praying it would be soon. And then one day, King Richard returned. Around the glittering coming, many tales are told, woven into legends of England, stuff like Robin Hood. John's castle tumbled like ninepins. Great Richard laid claim to his throne and no one dared to stand in his way. History records that the people began to shout, they began to ring bells, and, and they began to chant, Long live the king, because the lion has returned. 
And you need to understand that one day a king greater than Richard will lay claim to a kingdom much greater than England. Because earth has been under the hold of a usurper. And Satan will be vanquished and all those who've mismanaged this world and those who've rejected Christ's lordship, they will be crushed under the glory of his own presence. You need to understand Jesus Christ is coming back. He is returning. You need to know that. You'll never be able to leave today saying, Pastor Josh didn't warn us these things were going to happen. I'm telling you, he's coming. He is coming. The world will not continue spiraling on forever like this. Today, the world is reflecting on the most incredible event that has ever happened in human history. 2,000 years ago, there was one who came, said he was God, claimed he would die and rise again three days later. He rose again three days later, and that is the single greatest event in human history. Only to be eclipsed by the second coming of Christ. And you need to understand there are 300 prophecies that directly speak in the Bible about Jesus' first coming. Guess how many he fulfilled? Every single one. You know how many there are of his second coming? There's five times more scripture that speaks about his second coming than his first coming. And if he fulfilled every single one of the 324 prophecies of his first coming, do you think he's going to fulfill all 1,500 verses of his second coming? You better believe it. He's coming, friends. Today's message is the resurrected king is returning. We're going to look at an impossible prophecy. Totally impossible. It's an undeniable resurrection and a guaranteed return. You know, men have long sought to know what the future holds. People read horoscopes, tarot cards. They call psychic hotlines. Sometimes I think, who gives in to that? I mean, they'll hire somebody to rub their big toe and tell them their future. You don't want to get a mate off your big toe, all right? Better ways to figure that one out. There's only one who can declare the end from the beginning. It's the God of the Bible. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says this. Remember the former things of old. God says, for I am God and there is none else. How many gods are there? God says there's no one else. I am God and there is none like me. What makes you so different? He says, I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. You need to understand today. Sometimes people say, oh, there's all these religions in the world. How do we know which one's correct? Well, you say that because you've not studied it. That's why you say that. I've studied it, and I know why I don't believe in Islam. I know why I don't believe in Hinduism. I know why I'm not a Buddhist. I know why. I could dialogue on that for quite a while, but I can tell you this. There is no religion in the world that prophesied of their Messiah's coming like the Bible has. You know how many prophecies are about Muhammad's first coming? You know how many? Zero. There's not one thing written about his first coming. There's over 324 specific prophecies of Christ's coming. Absolutely impossible. Written thousands sometimes of years before he was even born. It's impossible. The crucifix was detailed in Psalms 22, hundreds of years before the Persians even created crucifixion. It says they'll pierce my hands and feet. How did they know that? We have dug up manuscripts dated 100 BC that were written back then before all of that happened, detailing that. No, no, there's nothing like the Bible. There is nothing like the Bible. Jesus Christ claimed the most unique prophecies you will find it anywhere. 
Muhammad never said how he would die. Buddha was never prophesied to come. He never said how he would die. None of these guys. Jesus said this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I will be crucified. I will be scourged. These are the, same, these are the exact people who I will be rejected by. I will be crucified. And to validate what I say is true of all that I've taught, of all that I've done, and who I am, I will raise my own dead body back from the grave. Now just consider, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would do the same thing I would do. It was nice meeting you. We would leave. I'm being honest. If, if, if I lived back then, I would say, this guy has lost his mind. This is, that's impossible. You don't predict your own death. And then if you are going to die, you can't raise your... That's impossible. That's absurd at the highest level. The only people who say stuff like that are the people who drink too much NyQuil or something. <laughs> Dish detergent. Unless you can do it. Unless you can pull it off. And, and you just need to understand, like, Jesus said this over and over and over and over. He just kept saying it. Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed, and be raised again the third day. The next chapter, 17, verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Verse 22, same chapter. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. I'm going to be betrayed. How did you know that? Because he knows it. And the Son of Man shall be betrayed, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Matthew 20, verse 18. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the chief priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. And then he gets even more detailed. Shall deliver me to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day they'll rise, I'll rise again. Matthew 26, 31. He gets even more detailed. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. It's here, guys. Like this night, it's coming. For it will... It is written, I will smite the shepherd, the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad, but after I'm risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. It's just unbelievable. This is, this is, this is impossible language. It's so impossible that when, when the disciples heard it the first time, listen to what Peter does. Matthew 16, 22. Then Peter took him, began to rebuke him, saying, Be far from the Lord, this shall not be unto you. You can't die. It's impossible. Because obviously there's resurrection. You can't... They, they, no. They couldn't accept it. Mark 9.10, it says, They kept saying within themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising of the dead should mean. Like, is this a parable? What's he even talking about? Mark 16, verse 9 through 13, what's interesting is after he rose from the dead, he appeared to women. So, like, you need to understand that um, women in those days under Roman, Greek, and Jewish culture were not... They did not view them as credible witnesses. Uh, among Jews, they would not even allow a woman to testify in a court of law. That, that's how low of a view they had of women. You have to ask yourself, why were women the first ones that Jesus chose to uh, show himself being resurrected to? They're the first witnesses. I can tell you this, if men wrote the Bible, that would have been the very last thing they ever would have done. They, they, that, would have, that would have never been sold. If you're trying to promote a hoax, you would, not, you would not do what the culture would not have believed. 
The reason that it says that women were the ones that were first witnesses is because that's factually what happened. And God does things like that to show you what he did. You know, when Luke 24, 11, when the women came to the men and told them this, look what it says in Luke 24, 11. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. They didn't believe the women. There's no way it's true. Listen to how Thomas, who was a disciple of Christ, responds when he hears Jesus rose from the dead. John 20, verse 25. The other disciples, therefore, said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto him, Except I shall see in his hands the print of nails, put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe it. This is impossible. You need to understand, they had no faith in Jesus being able to pull this off. So did Jesus predict his death? Did he? Yes. And did the disciples believe that he could rise from the dead? Okay, that's where you answer. Ready? Let's try that again. Did Jesus Christ say he was going to die? Did the disciples believe he would rise again? No. That, that's, so so it's, a, it's, an it's an impossible prophecy. You and I wouldn't have believed it either. And the second thing we see is an undeniable resurrection. Again, I, I said earlier, I believe that without doubt, the greatest event that has ever happened in human history is the, re is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The world is defined by that one day. For, for in rising from the dead, Christ validated that he is God in flesh. His message is true. He can save others. He will rule the world. And he is coming again. And it is a fact of history, as we will see. The resurrection is so verifiably true, the only people who will reject it are those who choose to not receive it. But anybody who looks at it with an open heart, I'm telling you, you'll walk away and you'll, you'll believe it. So how do we know the Lord rose from the dead? Is there evidence for the resurrection? Well, let me get a little technical this morning as we walk through some of these things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed a fact of history. Jesus Christ was crucified on a Friday. His body was taken according to Jewish burial customs. They wrapped him in linen cloth. Then they would take 60 to 100 pounds of a gummy substance and rub on those cloths as they wound them around Jesus' dead body. Then they took the Lord's body and placed him into a carved out tomb, a rock face, which is on the side of a hill, and they would, they would they bury him there, a massive stone that weighed around two tons or 4,000 pounds was then rolled with a lever system against the entrance of the tomb. I've been at that exact location. And it was designed to keep people from getting into those tombs. The Jewish authorities, in accordance um, with, with what they knew Jesus, they knew Jesus said he would rise again from the dead three days later. So according to Matthew 27, they, they went to Pilate and said, we know this deceiver said he'll rise again. And so we, we, we don't want the disciples to come and steal his body away and say that he rose from the dead. So she says, can we have, we have some Roman soldiers to guard the tomb? And Pilate says, go make it as sure as you want. Yes, you can. So they took Roman guards and they guarded the tomb for that week, weekend. You need to understand that according to History, Roman soldiers were extremely fearful of their superiors because if they did not do all that was required of them, they would face certain death. Like, they, you didn't just lose your job, you lost your life. For example, like if you're a Roman soldier and you're guarding a criminal, 
they would, um, if, if, if you got away, if you escaped, they would, they would not only kill the guy that escaped, but they would take that Roman soldier, strip him naked, start a fire with his own clothes, and burn him alive. And Roman, Roman soldiers would have to watch that. The, the, um, Dr. George Curry, a student of Roman military discipline, wrote that, quote, the fear of punishment produced flawless attention to duty, especially in night watches. These men knew their life was on the line. The Romans also had placed a Roman seal on, the Jew, on Jesus' tomb, which was a stamp that warned people not to mess with that tomb. If you mess with that Roman seal, the wrath of Rome will come against you. Like if you broke a Roman seal, the equivalents of the CIA and the FBI would, of Rome would come after you. When they found you, they would crucify you upside down for breaking a Roman seal. People feared Rome. And you also need to understand, when you went to Jerusalem, because it was under Roman control, you would see crucifixions everywhere. Crucifixion is, is beyond horrifying. Like, like the electric chair would be like one of the greatest deaths compared to being crucified. Drowning would be a great relief from crucifixion. Uh, people who've studied the cru crucifixion from John Hopkins University said the crucifixion is just a symphony of pain pierce your medial nerve and just in your hands and feet and, and the pain and the suffering. You die of asphyxiation because you hang there. You can breathe in, but you can't breathe out. So you have to push yourself up on that, those nails to exhale and you collapse back down. And sometimes they would suffer even for days in that state. Unbelievable agony. In the midst of all of that, you have 12 disciples one of them who betrayed Jesus, one who denied the leading disciple. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus, cursed, I don't even know the man. And then the other guys ran off. So what happens? Well, three days later, after Jesus is dead, in light of all of that, the tomb is empty on the third day. Factually, historically, that tomb has been empty. The Bible is clear that the tomb was empty on the third day. Listen to the Bible's account, Matthew 28. Verse 1 says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, sat upon it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. Comparative words there, they're like, let me, it just, it was like lightning. I don't know what else you would say. It, was, it looked like snow, it was so bright. And for fear of him, the keepers, these are the Roman soldiers, they shook and became his dead men. It just, they collapsed. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear ye not, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. And notice verse 6. Let's read verse 6 together. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. <laughs> Isn't that something? And then he tells them, And go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run and bring the disciples' word. This account is in all four Gospels, in Mark 16, Luke 24, and in John 20. You say, well, that's the Bible. I mean, the Bible is going to say he rose from the dead, Josh. I mean, that's the, the disciples are going to say that. Well, the Bible does say that he rose from the dead, and the Bible is an accurate reflection of history. But you need to understand that 
There were also Jewish and Roman sources that admit that the tomb was empty. The greatest Jewish historian is Josephus. He was not a Christian, but he wrote in Josephus' Antiquities that the tomb was empty. A compilation of 5th century Jewish writings called the Toledoth Jeshu also speaks of that. And then Roman historian Tacitus, who hated Christians, lived from 55 to 120 AD, and his annals also write of the empty tomb. Dr. Paul Maurer, a brilliant historian, author and professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, calls this, quote, positive evidence from a hostile source. He says it's the strongest kind of historical evidence. In essence, this means that if a source admits a fact decidedly not in its favor, then the fact is genuine. It is in fact the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ when he appeared to Saul of Tarsus that caused Saul to become a believer. Dr. Paul Maurer says no shred of evidence has yet been discovered from literary sources, epigraphy, which is study of ancient inscriptions, archaeology, that would disprove Christ's tomb being empty on the first Easter, end quote. You need to understand also that the evidence is so strong that it has caused committed atheists to walk away as a believer. Men like Lee Strobel, who was a graduate from Harvard University or Yale Law School, he was an investigative journalist and writer for the Chicago Tribune. He thought his life was over when his agnostic wife became a Christian. Not a, it wasn't not that it was bad enough that she was agnostic, but now she's become a believer, and he was. He he was just so upset. But after a while, he said, I began to see the changes in her that it wasn't worse. She actually got better. And um, and so he took his skill sets as a a lawyer, investigative journalist, and, and, and he began to apply that to the Bible. He literally spent two years researching the claims of Scripture all around the world. And, and, and he said this. What I learned rocked me to my core. And after two years of investigating, he said the evidence was so overwhelming that he became a believer because he said it was logically true. He said he wrote down all the reasons why he would not believe in Jesus and all the reasons that he should, and he said it was just no comparison. J. Warner Wallace is one of America's leading cold case uh, criminologists, homicide detectives, He's a lead detective on NBC's Dateline. By the age of 35, he was a hardened, outspoken atheist who decided to take his skill sets in dealing with cold cases and murder investigations and apply them to the Bible to see if the Bible was trustworthy. Again, he's a committed atheist, but his skill sets were, able, were of such that he could come to a crime scene that just didn't have good leads. They were, it was a cold scene. And he could find things that most people could not find. And he could research with the small amount of resources and determine if something was true, reliable, or trustworthy. Let me give you a small example of this. Uh, Years ago, it's probably been about 15, 18 years ago, there was my brother and I started a church in Chillicothe, Ohio. And there was a young, there was a teenager in the church at the time who was just an ornery kid. And he had stolen several things from the church. And and we believed that he had done this, but we didn't have like a video or anything. We just, it's like, it's got to be him. I mean, he's the only one out there. But he denied it. His dad denied he would, his son would ever, little, little, his little son would never do that. His son was like six foot. So we said, well, let's do a polygraph. Let's do a polygraph. And um, 
So we hired a detective, and we said, why don't you just, uh, he said, he said, I could, he said, I'll, I'll give this kid a test. I'll, I'll ask him just 12 questions on these papers, and, uh, and he fills out the answers, and he says, and this detective said, I, I can tell you with certainty if this kid's telling the truth or not. So, so we had the kid fill these papers out. He turns him into the investigator. Within a couple hours, a guy calls back and says, there's a 98% chance that kid stole those things. We went to his dad and to him and said, this is what the guy said. The kid broke down crying and said, I did, I stole it. You and I don't have those skill sets. There's some people that do. They know what to look for. They know the questions asked. They know how to figure that out. When, when J. Warner Wallace applied his skill sets to the New Testament, it, it blew him away. He said, um, he, said the, he became a Christian as a result of it. He wrote a book entitled Cold Case Christianity. And, and he said this, the one thing that I love about being a Christian is it's verifiably true. He said it's verifiably true. He goes on and he, and he writes about the resurrection. And he said there's only three main reasons why somebody would like make something up. Like a resurrection or something like that. You do it for power, for money, or for sex. There's nothing else. That's the only reason they do it. It's all the only... And he said, when you, anytime somebody wants to like, deceive people, they, they create a hoax, they, they, they lie about something, they always do it for money, for power, or for sex. When you look in the Bible and you study history, they didn't become popular, they become hated. <laughs> All the Christians were hated. They were hated by Jews and Romans. They didn't get money. Most of them became absolutely impoverished and poor. And they didn't do it for sex because they preached uh, purity all the time. They, 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 they were upheld and they pushed against the cultural sexual perversions of the day. When these, when these atheists look into this, they, they walked away believers. I mean, the guy who helped me start Lighthouse 13 years ago, we had eight people when we started this church. One of the guys who came here to help me start the church was an atheist who would make his mom cry for going to church. That's how committed he was to atheism. He would make her cry, make fun of her. When I met him... I said, do you believe in God? He says, it's all, I don't believe in any of that. He said, I don't, heaven and hell, it's just a fiction. I said, what do you know of the Bible? He said, the only thing I know about the Bible and Jesus is what I've heard on The Simpsons. <laughs> he was 18. I said, if Jesus were real, would you want to believe in him? He said, if he was actually real, he said, I'd be a fool not to, but I don't believe in any of it. I said, if you were wrong, would you want to know? He said, yeah, I would. I said, why don't, you, uh, why don't you take the book that's the best-selling, most influential book that's ever been written in the history of the world. You know, Islam, was the, the, the Quran was written by one guy named Muhammad. One guy wrote the Quran, 117 surahs, chapters. This book was written by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages over 1,500 years and has become the best-selling, most influential book on planet Earth. Who but God could have written that? If God wrote a book, it would have to be the Bible. People say, oh, it's changed down through the years. The only people who say that, they, 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 when somebody says something like that, they've just admitted they're being ignorant. Not in a demeaning way. I don't mean this in a bad way. I mean that I know they haven't studied it. <laughs> they just tell on themselves. I'm like, uh, you can say that, but you do it with your eyes closed. You're saying that with your eyes of your mind being closed. Because I have studied it out. And I know that is so factually false. Like, like you can... You can take and verifiably research the Bible. Men like C.S. Lewis, who was a literary genius, 
did not believe in God of the Bible, did not believe in Christ. He was a literary genius, and he said, he said, I was too learned in literary criticism, criticism to reject the New Testament as a reliable source of history. He said, some people can do that, but I couldn't because I, I know too much. And I had to accept these things because history proves that the, we have too much documentation. Let me say this. There is more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament as being an accurate reflection of what was originally written than any ten works of antiquity put together. And so, so C.S. Lewis ended up becoming a believer. He said, because logically it's just true. The people who don't accept it are the ones who choose to reject it. It's like Democrats wanting to prove Trump's a good guy or Republicans wanting to prove that Biden's a good guy. They're just never going to do it. And some unbelievers are so hardened against Christ, they're not, it don't matter what the evidence is, right? Does that make sense? Is, are Democrats going to accept Trump? Are, are Republicans going to accept Biden? Don't, don't be a hardened person against Jesus Christ. If you do so, it's at the detriment of your own soul. And so, so you need to understand that what is found in the scriptures of the resurrection, what's found in history is verifiable. Acts 1 verse 3 says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. You know, Jesus, it says, was seen 40 days speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He after he rose from the dead, he lived among them for 40 days. They saw him. He taught them. He, he, he appeared at least 17 different times after his ascension. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he, he appeared to over 500 followers at one time. Sir Lionel Lucco, who is considered one of the greatest lawyers in British history, is recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most successful advocate. He had 245 consecutive murder acquittals. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II twice. And he says the following. I humbly add, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world and am still in active practice. I've been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials. And I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt, end quote. So why aren't you believing it if you don't today? Have you researched it as much as these guys? Are you more brilliant than Warner Wallace or Luko, the guy that's in the Guinness Book of World Records for his investigative abilities, or Lee Strobel? Did you graduate from Yale? Did you study the scriptures in such detail that you can say, logically, I don't accept this for these reasons? Or are you rejecting Christ because you love your sin and you don't want anybody that you're going to be held accountable to for your sins? Right? You know why I didn't want to get saved when I was young growing up? Because I wanted sin. And I didn't want to be held accountable for my sin. But there came a day when I recognized that I'm going to stand before the living God who created heaven and earth and He gave us His Word and He died on the cross for our sins and I don't want to go to hell. And I confess Christ as my Lord and Savior, turned my life over to Him and He's revolutionized my life. How do you explain Lighthouse? How do you explain an atheist and a, and a young preacher at 27 coming into this city preaching Christ and, and now we have three services with 900 some people that will gather here today? How do you explain that? 
And you know what the message is? You go into a city and you say, you know what? We're all sinners. We're going to die and go to hell unless we repent and give our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And God blows the church up. And let me say, we're not the bunny rabbit church. We're not the Easter egg church. You want to go home and do that? No problem with that. You can do what you want. But I'm going to tell you, we preach Christ, dead, risen, and coming again. That's this church. We, we are a Bible-preaching church. We are a Christ-centered church. We're not going to have a bunny rabbit playing at the piano today, all right? You know why? Because in a world that is dying and broken and spiraling out of control, we need to be serious about eternal things, don't we? The day for silliness is not today. I mean, don't feel bad when you go home and eat that chocolate-covered bunny rabbit. (laughs) Probably take a couple bites myself. It's so, it was so overwhelming, the uh, evidence for the resurrection, that the, the enemies of Christ have come up with some theories to explain the resurrection away. You just need to know this. this, is, this is, these are the four best theories that they've come up with because it's so factual true. The problem is you have an empty tomb and they've never been able to find the body. They don't know where it's at. The Jews don't know where, they can never find it and the Romans could never find it. And and then you have to answer this question. What caused the disciples to go everywhere preaching that Jesus rose from the dead if he didn't? So one of the the things they say is that they stole the body. The disciples stole the body. Okay, so just imagine with me. You have to believe this. So these guys who were so scared that they fled from Jesus the night of his, he was taken, that, that, that they, after he risen from the dead, they said, we didn't believe it were so brave that 11 of them got so excited that they they came and fought off those Roman soldiers and stole the body away from the tomb. When the Roman soldiers said, that's not what happened. And and, and they buried Jesus in some hidden place. And then they spend the rest of their life preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And do you know how all those disciples died? It's not written in the Bible, but it's written in history. Peter was crucified upside down for preaching. Andrew, his brother, was crucified in an X-shaped cross. John was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple because he wouldn't stop preaching. Jesus rose from the dead, and he fell 100 feet down, and they beat him to death when he hit the ground. Other of the disciples were flayed to death. They cut them up. They put them on skillets. Others were drugged through the streets till their bodies fell apart. Some were burned at the stake, and they, none of them recanted the story. None of them. History records that all of those 11 disciples, Judas betrayed Christ, hung himself the next day, the other 11. So you're going to tell me that they stole the body, buried it somewhere, and they all said, let's, let's just, we got to promote this hoax to our last dying breath. And they went around and preached that? You, you, that's what you're going to tell me? That, that's insanity. Nobody, nobody's ever done that in history, but they're going to do that there? That's how far people go. A, a second thing, they say they, the disciples must have gone to the wrong tomb. That's one of the theories. If the resurrection claim was merely because they went, oh, he's not here, he must have been risen. If, that, if it's a geographical mistake, all the Jews had to do was go get the body of Jesus and say, hey, here's the body. Guess what? Christianity's over. That's all they had to do. Where's the body? Then they, one, a, a third thing they say is it's hallucinations. These guys had mass hallucinations. I don't have time to go into this, but J. Warner Wallace would describe this in detail. He says, listen, that's, that's one of the dumbest things you could ever say. There's no such thing as mass hallucination. It doesn't work. 
The only way you hallucinate is by an individual believing something will be true so much so that they envision it to be true. And it doesn't happen on a mass scale. It just happens an individual at best. The problem is Jesus appeared at least 17 different times and sometimes over 500 people. You don't have mass hallucinations with 500 people. He said it just, it, it's impossible. Plus, if they hallucinate it, again, you just go get the body. If you're the Jewish authorities, you present the body, Christianity's over. The, the only other thing that they say could have happened, the only other uh, alternative, they say that Jesus swooned. It's called the swoon theory. Uh, which basically teaches Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just passed out. Uh, they took him off the cross, and uh, he was dehydrated, uh, blood loss. But when they put him in the tomb, the aromatic spices from the wrappings, again, it's 60 to 100 pounds of wrappings. How did you get those off? And, uh, and, 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 and he revived under the cool, moist air of the uh, tomb. He revived, he resuscitated, and then he climbed out of the tomb. And he appeared to the disciples, and they thought he must have risen from the dead. A few problems with that. Actually, tons of problems. First of all, Romans were expert killers. Like, they didn't mess up on this. Like, you die. They knew how to kill you, and they knew what death meant. They, then, then Jesus was pierced in his hands and feet. So what, he, he's a, they, they used a Roman flagrum to, to whip his back, which would, would just... T- many people died just from the whippings, the scourgings. So you're going to tell me he, he needed desperate medical. He, he's all night long, and then he climbs out. How does he get out of the tomb anyway? Does he fight the guards off? I mean, that's insane. That's so ridiculous. So unless today you're willing to believe one of those theories, you have to come to the conclusion, Jesus Christ must have risen from the dead. There's nothing else that explains the empty tomb and the explosion of Christianity and why the disciples preach the gospel to their dying death, dying dying breath. They, they just kept doing it. I, I just want you to consider this. Jesus, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's a small town in those days, just a few thousand people. In a manger to a virgin named Mary. He grew up in a small town of Nazareth, again, just a small town, in a carpenter's house. He never is said in history to have owned his own home. He never held an office, never had a bank account, never went to college, never traveled more than 200 miles from his home. He never led a military or a nation. He was not rich. He was not wealthy. He wasn't oppressive. He didn't start a revolution. He didn't force anyone to follow him. He walked almost everywhere he went. He stayed with friends. At around 30 years old, he starts a public ministry preaching. It's only three years that he does this. At the end of that, the tide of popular opinion moves against him. His, own, his closest friends bail out on him. One of his friends end up betraying him. He is rejected of his own nation, and they condemn him to Roman crucifixion. They nail him between two thieves. And while he's dying, if that's not bad enough, the Roman soldiers gamble for the only possession that Jesus had, which was his garment. When he died, they buried him in a borrowed tomb out of pity from a friend. That's the end of Jesus' life. And you need to know this, out of the estimated 100 billion people that have ever been born on planet Earth, there has never been a human being that has impacted and influenced planet Earth more than that man. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? There's absolutely no explanation for that. 
No one has been more, you know, you know, there's more books. If you go to the library, no one has more books written about them than Jesus Christ. You can literally nearly reproduce the entirety of the Bible just by the quotations of the Bible and other books in, a, in any library you pick in the world, in, in, in any city. Our calendar is set to his birthday. There's more songs sung about him than anyone who's ever lived. Even Napoleon, the great, admitted, I know men, he says, I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and whoever else is in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He said, if Socrates would enter the room, we would rise and honor him. But if Jesus came into the room, we would fall on our knees and worship him. Jesus Christ is without debate the most influential person that's ever lived on planet Earth. That's a fact. H.G. Wells, the great historian, when asked which person left the most permanent impression on history, said, by this test, Jesus stands first. I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history, end quote. How do you explain that? The only explanation, friends, is Jesus rose from the dead. No one else has done that. Jesus Christ is life. He doesn't just give life, he is life. He's the only one who took death and made death his servant. No one does that. You know, by the year 350 A.D., Christianity exploded from just an estimated 1,000 believers in 40 A.D. to 33 million believers by 350 A.D. How on earth do you explain that? The only explanation is Jesus had to have risen from the dead and they went everywhere preaching it. And, and, and as a result, just study it out. They, the Romans killed Christians. Nero took Christians, put them in wax, and lit his garden up at night while, with burning Christians during his parties. They sewed them up in animal skins and brought them down to the Colosseum and slaughtered them. Christians were the most hated, persecuted group. Why did they keep going? Why, why would you do that? Because, they, because it's true. They believed it to the very core. You have to ask yourself today, what do you believe? Do you believe that? We have an impossible prophecy. It's an undeniable resurrection. And thirdly, and we're going to be done, a guaranteed return. <laughs> because Jesus rose from the dead, it validates everything he said. And it guarantees his second coming. There are over 300 prophecies, as I said, of his first coming. Over 1,500 verses that speak of his second coming. And if he filled every, fulfilled every one of his the prophecies of his first coming, do you think he's going to come back like he said? Is he going to do that? The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, reveals that reality. You know, the Gospels speak about Jesus' first coming. And the four Gospels record for us what, what is known as the humiliation of Christ, that he came as the suffering servant, as the Lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world away. But the book of Revelation reveals how Jesus is coming the second time. And it's not in humiliation. It's not in brokenness. When Jesus returns, he's not returning as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. He will not be subjected, subjected to man's judgments. When he comes the second time, there is no manger for Jesus anymore. You can keep your mangers. There is no swaddling clothes. There is no room for him in the end that's not there. None of that's going to happen anymore. 
He will not be subjected to hunger and thirst ever again. He will not be hit. He will not be bruised, spit on by anyone. No one's going to scoff at him, ridicule him, mock him. No one's pulling the beard out of his face anymore. He will stand before no human court, no judge. He's not taking any polls to see what popular opinions are. No one will see him suffer. No one will crucify him. No one will put a stripe on his back ever again. No one's going to gamble for his garments because he's going to radiate like the sun. The unbelieving world, the last time they saw the Lord was a broken, naked body of a Jew, 33 years old, hanging on a cross who had nothing. But I can tell you when he returns, he says, behold, I'm coming and every eye will see me. They're going to see me in all my blazing glory. Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples, but the world never saw it. He veiled it. But I'm going to tell you something. He's revealing his glory to the world. And the Bible says the world will mourn before him. Revelation 19 records what's going to happen. You know, Jesus is going to show up the second time and he's going to be holding, according to Revelation 5, the title deed of the earth in his hand. And Revelation 19, 11 says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. What's he look like? Well, his eyes were as a flame of fire. His head were many crowns, and he had a name written which no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. His name's called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him. That's, that's the believers who are saved. They're going to be with Christ. They're clothed in white... Fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword, and he shall smite the nations, and shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who Jesus is. You, just, you will never be able to say that I went to Lighthouse, and you know, they had and they had bunnies jumping around, and we did a big egg hunt, a big egg drop, you know, and we went out and had a good time. And nothing wrong with having fun, nothing wrong with... I want you to leave Lighthouse and know that Jesus, Jesus Christ was preached. That He told me the truth about Christ. That He told us that one day Jesus is coming back. That Jesus sits on the throne. That He was crucified, died, was buried, and rose again. And one day, I'm going to stand before Him. And if I am not saved, if I'm not in right standing with God, that I will fall under the judgment of the great King. You've been warned. Because the pastor up here loves you. You know, it would be real easy for me to... Um, to make this all palatable, to talk to you about how God loves you and loves the world and everybody's going to go to heaven and all this stuff and try to twist the scriptures into something it doesn't say. But I'm more concerned about your eternity than your friendship. I'm more concerned that you would know the truth. It's like a doctor. If a doctor knew you had stage 4 cancer and he's like, you know, Scott, you have stage 4 cancer but, and I've read the report and I knew you had stage 4 cancer but I'm like, I don't want Scott to get upset today so I'm going to tell Scott, Scott, you're healthy. No, you're going to live for another 30 years and then in four months he's dead because I didn't want to tell him. His blood's on my hands. You know what a loving pastor does? A loving pastor doesn't keep people from the truth. He brings them to it. Jesus said in Luke 12 verse 40, Be ye therefore ready also for the Son of Man comes when you think not. He's coming, friends. He's coming. Jesus Christ will return. He's going to rapture his church up. We're going to go to be with the Lord the Bible tells us when the rapture happens, which can happen at any moment, there is nothing that is keeping that from happening right now. He could do it at any moment. That will be followed by what's known as a seven-year tribulation when hell comes to earth. 
All hell breaks loose. There will be, the pit of hell will be opened and demon infestation will come onto this earth. You can't see them, but it's going to be just hell on earth. Judgment will fall on this planet. The Bible tells us all these things, as they've come to pass, will come to pass. Today you must realize that you're here for a reason. I, I believe that every one of you are here by divine appointment. I, I believe that, the, just think, like, how did you end up at Lighthouse today? Just, just ask yourself that. How did you end up here? Like you're sitting in, that, sitting in that chair. Think about a year ago or five years ago. Think about how many other places you would be than sitting right here, right now, hearing this. You're here for this reason. Like God, God has placed you here. And he wants you to know this. One day you and I will stand before God. We'll give an account of our life. Every one of us will do that. If God asked you, why should I let you into heaven today? What would you say to him? If he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And if your answer was wrong, would you want to know that it was wrong? You know what the Bible tells us? That we've all sinned. I'm a pastor, but I'm no better than anybody in this room. I'm not going to heaven because I preach or serve or anything like that. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. Sin is breaking God's laws. Like going 55 and a 35 is breaking the law. Sin is breaking God's laws. And one of God's laws says, thou shalt not lie. Anybody here ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, we got a bunch of liars here today. The Bible says liars are friars, man. One of the commands says, don't take God's name in vain. You ever done that before? Taking God's name in a way that didn't honor him? Yeah, we've done that before. That's called blasphemy. Very serious with God. One of the commands says, love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus put that at the very top. Anybody here ever put something in front of God or love something more than God? Yeah, we'd be guilty as idolaters. And the list goes on and on. If you and I sin three, ta- three times a day for a year, that's over a thousand offenses. And after... After 70 years of life, a normal life, we'd have over 70,000 sins. So if you stood before God, would you be innocent or guilty? We'd be guilty. And if we're found guilty, what happens? Well, Revelation 21.8, the last book of the Bible, this is what God says. And Revelation 21.8 says, but the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable murderers, we're like, well, we expect them to be there. And whoremongers, they do sexually wrong things, sorcerers are into witchcraft, and idolaters, uh-oh. And then it says this, and all, what does it say? We just jumped into Revelation 21.8, didn't we? And look what happens. Shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I mean, this is, we're not guessing at this. The same Jesus who said, I will die, buried, rise again, is the same Jesus who said that. Is it true? You can, you can reject it. You can deny it. That's up to you. But I'm going to tell you, that's true. I'm basing my eternity on, on the Bible. I'm not going to guess at this. I'm not going to watch Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and say, well, I'm going to believe what they say. No, I'm going to, I'm going to believe Jesus. A little bit more reliable source, right? And so today, you're going to have to ask yourself, what are you going to base your eternity on? Now, how do you get rid of your sin is a question. Well, the Bible says you can't be good enough to get rid of your sin. You can't be go, go to church enough to get rid of your sin. The Bible says only Christ can get rid of your sin. And the only way that happens is when a person repents of their sin, which means here's sin and here's Christ. I'm turning from my sin. I turn to Christ. I turn from unbelief to faith. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, was buried and rose again. The Bible says, whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not just intellectual belief. Intellectual belief saves no one. It is a salvation, a belief of the will. 
It means that you're my Lord. I believe you. You are the Lord of my life now. It means that Jesus, you call the shots. You sit in the driver's seat of my life. No longer is it about me. It's about what Christ wants. Ask yourself this question. Who has been in the driver's seat of your life? Have you been sitting in the driver's seat or is Christ? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? If you're truly saved, Jesus Christ will lead your life. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're on a different road. It's not the perfection of your life, but it is the direction. And today, if you don't know Christ, I have men and women standing at that door and at that door. I'll be down front. We're just normal people, man. Blue collar, no collar, white collar, don't matter. If you're here today, you need to know Christ. And why don't you come today? If you don't know that answer, we'd have people sit down with you in the privacy of a room and show you from the Bible, answer any questions you have. They won't pressure you to do anything. It'll be up to you. But you could make a decision today to call out to Christ and be saved. Wouldn't it be great to go home today Sit around with your family at a meal and know that when your life's over, you'll be in heaven. We just buried three people in the last two days in this church. You have no idea when your last day is going to be. Another funeral this next week. You have no idea when your last day is going to be. You could live for 50 more years or you could live for five more days. You have no idea. The Bible says, be ready. He's coming. He's coming. And Christian, I close with this. I love seeing a full day today. We had to add an extra service because we can't fit everybody in two services. But shouldn't that be the case? Shouldn't that be the case? Don't honor Jesus just on Easter. Thank you for being here. Praise God for your faithfulness. It's such an awesome thing to see. But be here next week, right? Honor him, the Lord's day. The world is dying and going to hell, spiraling out of control. Our children don't need to see us raising them up just on the ball field and playing games. They need to see us raising them up in what will matter for eternity. Amen? Nothing wrong with those games. Do that. Enjoy life. Spend time. Bless those things. But make sure God's at the very center. Amen? Let's all stand this morning. The altar is open with heads bowed and eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and that's, that's you as we... You say, Pastor Josh, if I stood before God, I know that I'm saved. I've trusted in Christ as my Savior. If that's your testimony, would you raise your hand today as a testimony of your faith? You've been saved. and Amen. You can raise your hand if you've done that. Amen. You can put your hands down. Praise God. If you're, if you're here today, say, Pastor Josh, could you pray for me? Because if I stood before God, I don't know if heaven's my home. If Jesus said, why should I let you in heaven? I'm not quite sure what I would say. I don't know that for sure. But I would love to know that for sure. I would never come to you, never embarrass you. But if you're here today and you say, Pastor, could you pray for me? Because I, I need, to, need to get saved. I need to make sure of that. If that's you today, would you just raise your hand that I might know to pray for you, friend? Thank you, I see you. Thank you, I see you. Anybody else, just raise it up and I'll know to pray for you. Just remember me, Josh. Just I, I don't want to be off on this. I don't want to be wrong on this. Thank you, I saw several hands today. If you're here today and that's you, listen. We'll be down front side in a private room and talk with you. Love to do that. Don't, don't put that off. Don't put that off today. Christian, maybe today you just need to recommit your life. Say, hey, maybe you are saved, but you've just been away from the Lord, but you need to make that commitment to Christ. Why don't you do that today? Father, we thank you for your word. We celebrate Jesus Christ. You alone died, were buried, and rose again. We celebrate your greatness. Thank you for all the precious folks who've come out today and may your mercy rest upon them. I pray for anyone today that doesn't know Christ that they would be saved and for those that are saved would be just surrendered and committed. Our time is short on this earth and let us be busy about your business. In Christ's name, amen.